Thank you, Lydia, Savannah, and Sydney, for that ministry and music. Thank you for everyone else who has had a part in our service tonight. Metaphoric language can be a powerful tool in communication. When used effectively, metaphors and symbols enhance an idea. They paint a picture. And the purpose of that picture is to communicate a concept more deeply. The Bible itself makes great use of metaphoric and symbolic language. And one of the most commonly used symbols in all of Scripture is water. The figurative power of water is so effective that it it appears in some of the most well-known verses in the Bible. Psalm Psalm 42.1 says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Psalm 23, verses 1 and 2. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And finally, John 4, 13 and 14. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. If you read through the Bible and start to pay close attention to how many times water is symbolically used, you really start to see it everywhere, all throughout the Scripture. And what you will start to realize is that water does not always represent the same thought or the same idea. And that is because water has many unique properties. It has many unique features. Therefore, it can paint many different pictures. Water can represent many different ideas. For example, water can symbolize peace and refreshment. Isaiah 66, 12 says, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. On the complete other hand, on the complete other side of the spectrum, water can represent turbulence and distress. Isaiah 17, 12 says, Ah, the thunder of many peoples, they thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. Water can indicate steadfastness and endurance. Amos 5.24 says, But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Water is pure, and it can represent cleanliness. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. And finally, the comparison I want us to primarily recognize this evening is that water can symbolize satisfaction. Water is fulfilling. Isaiah 58, 11 says, And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Water can symbolize satisfaction. We will get there in a minute, but tonight we will be in Jeremiah. And the passage before us uses the symbol of water to represent satisfaction. Now, this is a very proper representation because water is in and of itself satisfying. On a hot day or after a long day of work, your body craves water. Why? Because water satisfies our thirst. Water gives us life and energy to keep on going. We need it to survive. 
And when we quench our thirst with water, our bodies are refreshed. We are rejuvenated. Water is fulfilling to our bodies. Therefore, from time to time, the scriptures use water to represent satisfaction. Hold that thought. We'll get back to it in a minute. Now, changing tunes a little bit, let us consider satisfaction. What's, what's the concept of satisfaction in our society, in our world? Well, satisfaction is a, a core pillar in our society. We are told, we are taught, and we are pressured by culture to pursue happiness, to pursue personal satisfaction. What society comes, or quickly comes to realize is that the more effort you dedicate into this pursuit, the more unfulfilled you tend to become. It is a journey that has no end. It is a race that has no finish line. You see, without God, without God, the things of this world will never truly fulfill. Yet our society is continually searching and striving for that finish line, and because they can never reach it, questions arise. Questions like, how can I be satisfied with my job? Why am I not fulfilled with the money that I make? Why am I not satisfied and happy with anything in my life? I read an interesting article that tried to answer some of these questions. And the title was, 10 Reasons Why Someone Is Never Satisfied With Anything. 10 Reasons Why Someone Is Never Satisfied With Anything. And what I found interesting was the number one reason the author gave the first reason as to why people might not be satisfied with their lives. The author said, number one reason, it is because they're chasing after the wrong things. They're chasing after the wrong things. I thought this was interesting. The author went on to explain, and I quote, one big reason why someone would never be satisfied with anything they get is because they're chasing after the wrong thing. This can be applied to almost anything. Not being satisfied with your salary because it's not really a career that you like. Not being satisfied with your house because it's not really the neighborhood that you want to live in. The person who's chasing after the wrong thing is not aware that they're doing it, so they try adding more and more to their cup, hoping that it will be filled. But the problem is they're holding the wrong cup. End quote. I would submit to you that, yes, the problem is people are holding the wrong cup, but the right cup is not what the author suggests, right? The right cup is not a new neighborhood or a new career. I'm not saying moving or getting a new job is bad. What I'm referring to is finding ultimate fulfillment in these acts. You see, we are not to exchange one earthly pursuit or another, for another earthly pursuit. If that is the road we take, we will remain unfulfilled. The only cup that can truly satisfy is the cup of living water that comes from God alone. If one is truly to find satisfaction in this world, they must look to God and be satisfied in him. Our memorable or notable verse for this evening is actually twofold. We will be considering verses 12 and 13 of Jeremiah chapter 2. Look with me at these two notable verses. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Our theme tonight is five words. Five simple words that are incredibly important and carry an incredible amount of weight. And that is that only God can fully satisfy. Only God can fully 
satisfy. But before we begin looking at this theme and our memorable verse in depth, we need to understand the context in which this command is rooted. What has been occurring in biblical history to evoke such words from our God? Well, the passage before us this evening is found in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is one of the prophets of the Lord. He prophesied to the people of Israel in the late stages of the kingdom era. Look with me at the first two verses of the book of Jeremiah, verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord, the son, or sorry, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. So Jeremiah's ministry began in the time of King Josiah. We see that in the verse 2, right? The word of the Lord came, and that is to Jeremiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now, King Josiah, he was the fifth last king of the people of Israel. So that means there were four kings who followed Josiah. Those kings were Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. And it is in the reign of Zedekiah, that fourth king, when Israel falls, right? And Israel is deported to Babylon. So Jeremiah, where does he fit in this, this timeline? Well, he ministered during this entire period, from Josiah all the way through to the fall of Jerusalem. That is when Jeremiah prophesied. Now, Jeremiah, he, he witnessed quite a unique period in Judean history. He truly, if you think about it, he really saw it all. Consider his timeline. His ministry started with a godly king. King Josiah was godly. He sought to reform Israel to faithfulness to the word of God. Josiah led Israel from rebellion into obedience. But Josiah's successors wanted nothing to do with the word of God or God's prophet Jeremiah. The scriptures tell us that Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah were all wicked kings. And in the time of these kings, Jeremiah warned against coming judgment, but the nation refused to respond to God's warning. Israel never repented. And as we know, judgment arrived and Israel was exiled into a foreign land. So Jeremiah truly saw it all. Jeremiah experienced the highs and he experienced the lows of Israel. He saw both sides of the moral compass. He witnessed the nation of Israel in times of faithful reform and in times of wrathful judgment. Jeremiah ministered at a very unique point in Judean history. So that is the historical context. That's the high level, the overall timeline of the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah began his ministry in the time of King Josiah, and his work continued through to the fall of Jerusalem. And during this period, Jeremiah's message was a final warning to a crumbling nation of Israel, a warning of the coming judgment. That is Jeremiah in a nutshell. But what is the direct context of the passage before us this evening? What is the surrounding message of our memorable verses? Well, we are grounded in Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2 is the first recorded message of Jeremiah. And in this message, we see God rebuke Israel for their apostasy. For their apostasy. Now, apostasy, it is the renunciation or the abandonment of a once-held belief. So in Jeremiah 2, we see how Israel has abandoned and turned their backs on the God of their fathers it was a God that they, they were once faithful to, but they have now rejected him. And now this was somewhat of a gradual abandonment. In the beginning of this chapter, 
The scriptures tell us that Israel began with covenant loyalty to God. They started off well. Look with me at Jeremiah 2, verses 2 and 3. This is the beginning of Jeremiah's message. He says, this is God speaking. I, that being God, remember the devotion of of your youth, that is Israel's youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruit of his harvest. All who ate of it and cured guilt, disaster came upon them. That's referring to the enemies, declares the Lord. You see, Israel, in their youth, as a young nation, they started off well. The scriptures say that God remembered their devotion. He remembered their loyalty and their faithfulness. They were obedient and took joy and satisfaction in their Lord. We see a glimpse of that faithful obedience in Exodus 35 through 39. And in these five chapters, Israel, all right, they're in the wilderness. They've crossed the Red Sea. Now they're in the wilderness. And Exodus 35 through 39 gives a report of the construction of the tabernacle and its furnishings. And what we see throughout this report is that Israel was faithful in their work. They did the work joyfully, and they did the work well. They followed the commands of God and constructed the tabernacle to the likeness that God had set forth. At the end, in Exodus 39, verses 42 and 43, the scriptures tell us this. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded. So, they, so had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. You see, Israel began their relationship with Yahweh properly. Not perfectly, not perfectly, but suitably. They were loyal. But what is heartbreaking is that in time, Israel forgot their God. They turned their back on their first love. They broke the covenant and abandoned the true and the living God. We see this as Jeremiah chapter 2 unfolds. Look with me at verse 5. It says, Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? God says, Why did you leave me? Why did you stop pursuing me, and why did you stop remaining faithful to me? God asks, what wrong did your fathers find in me? How have I been disloyal? And the answer is, of course, God has not been disloyal. He has been steadfast, and he has been faithful. But how has Israel responded to the faithfulness and goodness of God? They exchange God for the pursuit of worthlessness. They exchange God for the, for the pursuit of of worthlessness. And now this word for worthlessness is quite literally a reference to pagan idols, vain and worthless materials, handcrafted images that are worshipped instead of God. Israel exchanged satisfaction in God, loyalty to God, for carved images. Carved images that were meaningless, worthless, and powerless. Therefore, in Jeremiah 2, God rebukes and condemns Israel for this abandonment. That is the context before us this evening. Israel has committed apostasy. They began in faith. They started off as loyal servants and children of God, but they gradually came to reject and disobey their Lord. And now, Jeremiah delivers the word of the Lord concerning this rebellion. That is the message of Jeremiah 2. It is a rebuke of Israel's infidelity. So now we finally come to our memorable verse. What does God have to say about this rebellion 
and unfaithfulness. Look with me at verse 12. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. What does God have to say about this rebellion? He says it is horrific. What Israel has done is shuddering and astonishing. It is audacious. How does Israel have the audacity to deny the living God? That is what God has to say about this rebellion. It is appalling. Now, in terms of form, this is a a very unique verse. We have three verbs within this verse. To be appalled, to be shocked, and to be desolate. And all three of these verbs have the same exact tense. Right? They are imperatives, and what that means is that they are commands. Whenever a command is given, there must be an audience to receive that command. So who is the audience to which these commands are directed? Who is to be appalled? Who is to be shocked? And who is to be desolate? Well, it says, the heavens. Be appalled, O heavens. The inanimate created cosmos. What Israel has done, their apostasy, their audacity to rebel, should be shocking to the created universe. God calls for the heavens to gather and witness the appalling acts of his rebellious people. And if it is to be shocking and tragic to the inanimate objects of God's creation, how much more should it be shocking to us, the readers of his word? Hold that thought. We will come back to it in a minute. But back to the unique form of this verse. Like we just saw, this, verb ha- this uh, verse has three verbs. To be appalled, to be shocked, and to be desolate. Now, each one of these verbs carries a very vivid image. A very vivid image. First, we have to be appalled. To be appalled conveys the thought of being astonished. And this is not a happy astonishment. This is not like a joyful surprise. Not like a a surprise birthday party. But this verb is meant to be dreadful. It conveys the idea of being astonished with a sense of fear. What Israel has done should place us in a state of dread. We are to be stunned to hear of this rebellion. The second verb, to be shocked, quite literally has the image of bristling one's hair, to make the hair of your body physically rise up. The word is actually not used all that often in the scriptures, but we do see it in in, uh, Ezekiel chapter 27, and I think this particular use of this word creates a very vivid image. Look Look with me at it now. Ezekiel 27, 35. All the inhabitants of the coastlands are appalled at you, and the hair of their kings bristle with horror. The hair of their kings bristle with horror. What Israel has done is shuddering. It should make the hair of our bodies stand straight up in fear. For the people of God have turned their backs on the all-powerful creator. When we understand the power of God and the frailty of human flesh, it should frighten us to ever consider rebellion. Creation turning their backs on the creator is a scary picture. And finally, the third verb, to be utterly desolate, as the image of being exceedingly ruined. To hear of Israel's unfaithfulness should quite literally make us feel destroyed. It should, it should ruin us inside. Uh, when this word is, appears in other parts of the Old Testament, it, it is often translated as to dry or to dry up. When we hear that Israel has replaced the living, true God with useless idols, it should suck the life out of us. It should quite literally dry us up. You see, each one of these verbs, to be appalled, to be shocked, and to be desolate, conveys a lot of emotion. And when we read this verse with that emotion, 
The rebellion of God's people should bring a sense of horror and tragedy to our hearts. Israel's choice in rejecting God is truly tragic. So application point number one. Is the rebellion of Israel astonishing to us? God says that the universe is to be appalled at Israel's insurrection. It is a tragic and it is a horrific act. But do we recognize it as horrific? Are our hearts burdened when we think of the audacity of this rebellion? I trust that we know the story of the nation of Israel well. I trust that we are familiar with Israel's continual rejection, the continual disobedience, and the continual failure that we see time and time again as the scriptures unfold. But as we read and observe this downhill spiral, do we see Israel's apostasy as horrific as the Lord indicates? Do we consider rebellion to God? Do we ever consider sin to be heart-wrenching? When people turn their backs on the living God, does it bring us to ruin? As you, as you may know, uh, as a teen, I used to work at Victory Valley Camp over the summer months. And Victory Valley is our denomination's Bible camp up in Allentown. And as I worked there over a couple of years, I got to serve alongside some very unique and some very profound professors of Christ. And to see God use these people, these young people, to further his kingdom was special. I was encouraged as a young person to continue in service and to remain faithful to God as I got older. It has now been a number of years since I have worked at Victory Valley, and as those fellow summer missionaries have also gotten older and moved into different stages of their lives, I hear of their life updates from time to time. Many of these updates are encouraging. I hear of some of these summer missionaries growing up and continuing as faithful servants of God. They are involved in their churches. They married believers and have started God-honoring families. They went to college and continued to remain faithful, though they were pressured by cultural temptations. The stories can be very, very encouraging. But I also hear stories of rejection. I hear of young men and women who have turned away from God. They have reached adulthood and no longer want to be affiliated with Christians. They have given in to the desires of their flesh and the priorities of our world. To them, Christianity is no more than a distant life, a past and a delusional way of living. They have turned their backs on God and are now trying to find satisfaction in what the world offers. When we hear similar stories like this, does it break our hearts? Does it bring us to ruin? Do we see rebellion to God as a big deal? What does God say? He says rebellion is appalling. May our hearts be burdened when we hear of individuals rejecting our Lord. May we seek to encourage them to either start on the path of Christianity or get back on the path of righteous living. Rebellion is disheartening. May we see sin as tragic as the Lord makes clear. That leads us into application point number two. When we rebel, when we sin against God, are we heartbroken? Are we undone at the tragedy of our sin? Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What does this verse mean? It means that when we sin, it pains and it sorrows the Holy Spirit. Sin is tragic. For when we rebel against God, we are spitting on the face of our Creator. Do we understand the horror of that? 
Do we understand the audacity of that? Do we understand how backwards that is? May we be disgusted at our sin problem. May our sin grieve us. May our sin appall us. And when we understand the tragedy of our sin, may it turn us to repentance. The Israelites, in the time of Jeremiah, they did not repent. But we still can. May we confess our sins and get back on the straight and narrow way, living faithfully for our God. Ponder those thoughts as we continue along. Now we get to the the core of the passage before us this evening. We saw in verse 12 how apostasy, Israel's abandonment of God, is a horrifying act. But now we answer the question of why. Why is this rebellion to God so wicked and so horrific? Look with me at verse 13. We'll start at verse 12, but pay attention to verse 13. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In their rebellion, Israel has committed two acts of wickedness. The first is that Israel has turned their backs on the one who satisfies all their needs. Verse 12 says, for my people have committed two evils. The first is right here. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. God had been Israel's fountain of living water. In the beginning of our time together this evening, we had briefly discussed the symbolic power of water. I said that eventually we will see how water is used as a metaphor in our verse this evening. Well, here it is. God describes himself as the fountain of living water. Now, Certainly, this picture of living water has many, many nuances, but the big idea that God is communicating is that he himself, Yahweh, is all-sufficient. God is all-sufficient. God is a continual supply of all we need. Think of the picture of a fountain. The word fountain here is a reference to a spring, and a spring is created when water is pressured up onto the earth's surface, and this pressure shoots the water up so that it continually flows. There is a continual supply of water. In the same way, God is a continual supply of all we need. Everything that Israel needed, all the comfort, all the provisions, all the grace has come from God. You'd certainly look at example after example of how God provided for Israel, but time will not allow for that this evening. But God had always been sufficient for Israel. All they needed came from God. Now, the thing about a spring is that the water it shoots onto the earth's surface is fresh water. It is pure. It is good to drink. In the same way, God is a good God. He is a pure God. He is a righteous and he is a holy God. A God who takes pleasure in sustaining and caring for his children. Psalm 149, verses 4 and 5 tell us, For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exalt in glory Let them sing for joy on their beds. Israel had a holy God who joyfully provided for all their needs. God was and he is all-sufficient. God is the only one who could satisfy every single need of the Israelites. But what has Israel done in response to this sufficient God? They turned their backs and they walked away from the living waters. They have rejected the only one who can sustain all their needs. They have refused to accept the pure goodness of the loving Father. And what have they done instead? 
They exchanged God for insufficient and worthless idols. Look with me at the end of verse 13. It says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The cisterns, in the context of this passage, it represents the idolatry, represents idols. Israel has exchanged God for idols. They have exchanged spring water for water at the bottom of a cistern. This is a very, very vibrant picture. We see a couple of images here. First and foremost, scriptures tell us that the Israelites hewed out cisterns for themselves. These idols are handmade. Right, don't, miss, don't miss the irony here. Remember, God had been their all-sufficient fountain. God had been their strength, their provision, and their relief in all areas of their lives. And not only had he given the Israelites these benefits, but he gave it to them freely. Think of a fountain. It is a constant supply of water. You don't need to pump the water out, or you don't need to drop a bucket down to collect the water. It is right there in front of you. All you need to do is extend your hands and take part of that water. A cistern, on the other hand, takes lots of work to make. You need to labor. You need to physically shovel out a hole in the ground to store this water. This water is no longer free, but you must work for it. And not only must you labor to create the cistern, but once it is made, you must continue working to obtain the actual water. You need to drop buckets into the cistern and pull the buckets back out. The picture here is ironic. Israel has chosen to labor, to put sweat into the acquiring of satisfaction instead of simply partaking in the free, all-sufficient fountain. But the irony doesn't stop there. Think of the different types of water that come from a spring versus a cistern. A spring has moving water. It has fresh water, new and abundant water every second. It is always gushing with alive and clean water. A cistern, on the other hand, collects water. It collects rainwater. That rainwater then sits at the bottom of this hole in the ground until it is ready to be drawn up with a bucket. This water would not have been clean and flowing. It would, not, it would have been old and stagnant. You see, the Israelites have traded fresh and lively water for murky and dormant water. You see, you see the irony here? The fountain of living water was free. Cisterns require labor. The living water of God comes from a freshwater fountain. The water of idols comes from a hole in the ground with stagnant water. Israel has turned their backs on something great in exchange for something of less value. At the end of, of the verse, we see that these cisterns, these, these false gods, what they're able to do. How, how, what do they provide for the Israelites? Look with me again at the very end. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves. And here it is. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. What are these idols able to do? Nothing. They can hold no water. They cannot satisfy. Even if they could hold water, it would have been stagnant, murky water. But God takes the image one step further. He says the idolatry is broken cisterns. They're cracked cisterns. Though Israel tries to replace God, they do it unsuccessfully. Though Israel tries to create another means of satisfaction, another means to satisfy their thirst, they fail. And they fail miserably. You see, this image, 
This image in verse 13 is all about satisfaction. What Israel has done is so appalling and so astonishing because they turn their backs on the one who is able to satisfy. Only God can fulfill. Nothing else in this world can provide like God can. No idols, no luxury, no person, no money can satisfy like our God. So to reject God is to reject fulfillment. To reject God is to reject a life of meaning and purpose. To reject God is to say to God, I know what I need for in life. I know what will fill me. I know what is best. But we don't. All we know how to do is make broken cisterns. No matter what we try to replace God with, we will come up empty-handed. We will come to see that nothing is as fulfilling as a relationship with the Almighty God. For he loves us and cares for us, and everything we need, he graciously bestows to us. Only God can satisfy completely. So application. Where are you trying to find satisfaction? Are you trying to find fulfillment in the things of this world? Maybe you're looking for your purpose in your career. Maybe you are looking for joy in money. Maybe you are searching for, for fulfillment in a boyfriend or a girlfriend. No matter what it is, the truth is, you will not find ultimate satisfaction in the things of this world apart from God. Maybe you are sitting here thinking that you don't need God to be filled in your life. You feel satisfied on earth as you are now. The earthly desires that you are chasing after are sufficing. Maybe the cistern that you have dug for yourself is producing water. But that water won't last. That delight won't last forever. Eventually it will leak. The only way to be filled in this life is to rest in God. When he is priority number one, when our lives are rooted in him, then we experience real fulfillment. We taste of the pure water. And when we partake of the living water, we come to be satisfied in other areas of our life. That's big. When we partake of the living water, we come to be satisfied in other areas of our lives. But it must start with God. When we are satisfied in God, we can be satisfied in all areas of our earthly lives. So in conclusion, let's ponder that for one moment. Let us ponder the fact that when we are satisfied in God first... How is, that, how, how is that experience of satisfaction, how do we experience satisfaction in other areas of our earthly lives? When we are satisfied in God, we can be satisfied in all areas of our earthly lives. So what does that look like? I would like to leave you with three examples. Three examples of how this satisfaction in God is manifested in one's life. Three people from the Bible whose satisfaction in God allowed them to be satisfied in other areas of their lives. Three people who relied upon the living water and were satisfied with his provision. Beginning with Joseph. Beginning with Joseph. I trust we know the story of Joseph well. How he was hated by his brothers and sold into the land of Egypt. How God prospered Joseph in Egypt and God used him to save the world from famine. And though Joseph faced many injustices, he relied upon God's faithfulness. He trusted God's plan and was satisfied in God's provision. Tonight, I want to consider perhaps a part of Joseph's life that is often overlooked. A part of his life in which his satisfaction in God allowed him to be satisfied with this particular area in his life. And that area in his life 
is his personal family. His personal family. Look with me at Genesis 41. Genesis 41, and just for context, this is when Pharaoh elevates Joseph as second in command over all Egypt. We will begin at verse 38. It says, And and Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. Verse 41, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus, he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah And he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. So keep that in mind. Asenath is given to Joseph as a wife. We'll pick up at verse 50. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, same Asenath, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So what are we to see in this passage? While in Egypt, Joseph becomes prosperous. We see that all throughout this portion of scripture. And and part of this prosperity is that he is given a wife. Verse 45 tells us that, pa- that Pharaoh gave Joseph a woman named Asenath as a wife. But notice what the scriptures do not say. The scriptures do not make mention of any other wives. Joseph married Asenath, and through Asenath alone, he bears his offspring, two children. What does this tell us? Joseph did not pursue many wives. He did not pursue many children. He only has two. He did not find his identity in a large family. You see, back in that time, much of your identity, much of your success was dependent upon how many wives and children you had. You know, Joseph probably had the capability to make his descendants great and large. He was the second most powerful man in Egypt, and at that time, Egypt was the most powerful nation in the world. Therefore, Joseph was the second most prominent man in the entire world. He could have had many wives if he wanted. He probably could have had many children. But what do the scriptures tell us? Joseph had one wife, Asenath. Scriptures tell us about Asenath twice, and that is not to be accidentally, that is not some simple accidental uh, redundancy. But the scriptures make it a point to tell us that Joseph married Asenath, one woman, and had children through that one woman. And through that one woman, he was content to only have two children. Because Joseph was satisfied in God and his provision, because Joseph drank from the living water, Joseph did not find it a necessity to make a great name for himself through his children. That is unique. And we further solidify this thought when we see Joseph's satisfaction in the naming of his second-born child. Ephraim was his second-born, and his name means twice fruitful. 
When Ephraim is born, Joseph says, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Joseph considered himself fruitful. He only had two children, but that is all he needed. He was content and considered himself blessed of God. Joseph was satisfied in the family that he produced. Why? Because ultimately, he was satisfied in God. Joseph drank from the living waters, and because he drank, he was filled. He needed no other water to satisfy his life. No vast amount of wives, no vast amount of children. Only God is all he needed. But what if all aspects of our lives are taken away? What if wealth, what if family, what if health is taken away? Is God still enough? Is God still sufficient? Can God still satisfy? Look with me at Job 1, verse 21. And he, that is Job, said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We know the story of Job. How all of Job's provisions and children are removed from his life, yet his reaction to God in this absolutely tragic time is, blessed be the name of the Lord. Job loses almost everything. He understands that God can never be taken away from him. Though the world crash and burn, God is still rolling, and God is still in control. Because Job is satisfied in God, he can be content in tragedy. No doubt he was mournful, but Job was content. Why? Because Job, because he still had God. He still had the living waters. When we are satisfied in God, we can be content when the world is taken away from us. Why? Because the spring is still producing water. And that water is much more refreshing than all other waters that the world can offer. And finally, we have the Apostle Paul. We know the passage well. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hungry, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In all things, in lows, in highs, in all life circumstances, Paul says he knows the secret to being content. And do you know what the Greek word for content in this passage means? It means satisfied. Paul has found the key to being satisfied in all life circumstances. And what is the key? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The key to satisfaction in all areas of life is to rest in God. It is God who strengthens. It is God who provides. It is God who protects. It is God who is all-sufficient. May we rest in the sufficiency of our Lord. May we follow the examples of Scripture. May we resist worthless pursuits, for God alone is sufficient. May we drink and be nourished by the living waters. Let's close with prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your provision in our lives. We thank you for being God over our lives. We thank you for being in control. We thank you for your son who you sent so that we can have a relationship with you and a forgiveness of sins. 
God, I pray that we will rest in that relationship. I pray that we won't be caught up in earthly pursuits and in worthless, in worthless satisfaction for, for ultimately they cannot satisfy apart from you. But may we rest in you first and primarily. May you be the first priority in our lives. And Lord, when we do fail, when we do chase after the, the temptations of this world, when, may we be quick to repent. May we be quick to come to you for forgiveness. And we thank you for being a Lord, for being a God who forgives. We thank you for all these things, and we just pray as, as we go throughout this week, throughout, throughout our lives, that we will be satisfied in you, and be satisfied in you alone. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Thank you, and we are dismissed.